and welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancato, and myself, George Shaft, where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic and just seeing what happens. It's going to be a more laid back approach to the MI Cynic standard episodes. And it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes, on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Today, a bit of a special one. We've got uh, a good friend of mine. And so it's a bit of an honor and a blessing, really, to be able to bring in somebody face to face, so to speak, rather than over a computer screen. And so it's a bit more of an, an intimate podcast, I hope. In fact, today I've got Shakir McLean coming to speak with us. Shakir, thank you so much for coming. Today. Thank you for inviting me. Um, always a pleasure to you know, speak on political issues, especially now when there's so much going on. And yeah, thank you for having me. And today we also have our wonderful co-host, George Schaff, joining us all the way from Luxembourg. George, how are you doing? Always happy to be dragged against my will towards the recording booth. Please help. This is a this is a, a, a cry for help. Well, this will actually be a good one today, George, because it's uh, we've chosen a topic that is near and dear, I think, to all of our hearts, uh, the three of us here being politicos as we were, <laughs> young people growing up in what can only be described as a, a very tumultuous time for uh, for all of British politics, and something that is unusual, to say the least, uh, for outside observers, uh, that Britain is usually seen as, as a stable sort of Westminster parliamentary democracy. Uh, but that has been thrown into question. But uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest today, uh, Shakir, for this conversation on 12 years of conservative rule. Uh, Shakir has a politics, uh, sorry, a degree in politics and international relations and journalism at the uh, Harrow campus of Westminster. He's been involved with politics and campaigning from the age of 15. He's got experience in leading and organizing several political campaigns, devising new and unique campaign strategies for specific demographic groups, negotiating with councillors, political party representatives and other key stakeholders, as well as being on the executive committee of a local political party here in London. And I can testify to all of this from the amount of times that Shakir has asked me to participate in uh, <laughs> one Lib Dem uh, event or another Labour canvas thing. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, anyhow, it's great to have you here, Shakir, with your experience in, in not only local politics, I think, but also uh, your your interpretation of, of events as they are currently unfolding. And so without further ado, I, uh, I briefly explained the, the subject of today, which will be 12 years of conservative rule. And it's a particularly salient time to be discussing this, of course, oh, yeah. as we have a brand new prime minister, um, her taking over of power from Boris Johnson, slightly overshadowed by the death of, of Her Majesty the Queen, but nevertheless, a seismic event in, in British politics. And I want to start uh, today's podcast with with some riveting news that uh, that have come out today as of recording, uh, the 28th of September of 2022, in which the IMF offered advice, to put it uh, very lightly, uh, of, to the British government uh, not to enact untargeted tax relief package, whilst at the same time the Bank of England rising interest rates almost overnight as an emergency response to our new Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng's mini-budget. 
this has raised eyebrows, uh, has crashed the pound, has put turmoil in the markets. It seems nobody was quite expecting Liz Truss's government to be on such a reckless uh, gamble path so early on into uh, her office. Um, Regardless, the IMF uh, says that blanket support for for energy companies will not help the neediest in society. This is usually a language reserved for developing countries that the AMF uh, likes to point a finger or wag a finger to. But do you think this is an embarrassment for Liz Truss and uh, the new chancellor? Well, well, absolutely. You know, within she's only been prime minister for you know less than two months, and she's already having the IMF have to interject on her and Kwasi Kwarteng's budget. You know, as Keir Starmer set out, they are, you know, worse the effect of the user that it was a self-inflicted wound. And very rarely do you hear that language used, you know, to describe a budget that has been made by a chancellor. You know, I think this is like the first budget they've made, the first mini budget they've made, and they've already been under such scrutiny and criticism. Usually when they first come in, you have so much positivity and so much excitement around the budget. For the IMF to actually interject, you know, into a budget made here in the United Kingdom is something that I certainly haven't seen in my lifetime. Um, so it's an absolute embarrassment from Liz Truss and an embarrassment on us as a country as a whole. I mean, what kind of question is that? Obviously. I'm, I'm not going to sit here and go, yes, of course, having the IMF you know, tell you that you've just di- put in a disastrous budget is embarrassing. Because of course it is. And frankly, putting in that budget in the first place was a disa- was an embarrassment in and of itself. For some reason, it's been living rent-free in my head since this morning. Uh, there was a picture that came out, been distributed all over, of a pint of milk costing one pound, a whole one pound for a pint of milk now in some supermarkets uh, across the country. That is the sort, you know, these kinds of inflation, cost of living rises, you know, you know, rises affect the poorest people in the country. And yet this mini-budget, was targeted, very tailored towards benefiting the most well-off people in the country, and while also making life harder for those at the bottom, at the same time as also raising interest rates. It's madness, and it is embarrassing for the whole country, as well as for Liz Truss. And she seems to have responded early on to uh, to all of this criticism taking place by the uh, the usual course of action of uh, blaming the war in Ukraine, which uh, of course is, is a significant factor, but it almost seems like a convenient excuse at this point. Uh, for she every, also took a very unusual other... way of taking that, uh, deflecting that blame, because instead of going on national news, national media, to deflect the blame, to put out the talking points, she instead opted to do a whole circuit of various local radio stations across the mm. BBC to you know, each one of them very short, to you know, basically put out her points with what I'm sure she thought was going to be a much less trained, a much less vicious interviewer, which has just ended up with a whole compilation of her being again and again and again asked very hard, very embarrassing questions, which she had absolutely no answer towards. So no, she didn't answer. No, respond in the usual way. She tried to be clever and tried to a new way of getting around it and embarrassed her further. Mm. Not exactly a glitzing start. But I wanted to to mention if the, if this anecdote, uh, 
not only for its own worth, but also as, a, as an indicament of where we're at. And especially looking back towards what is now going on 12 years of conservative rule, how it seems almost that the British public is in, in a way uh, insulated or desensitized to uh, the latest of what can only be described as an economic shock and, uh, and complete mismanagement. But um, and let's do that. Let's take a trip backwards through time, mm. Shakir, mm. and explore what exactly this means, so 12 conservative years and how we have come uh, to this. And, and with mm -hmm. that, we'll round off the conversation on, on this trust. Mm -hmm. But let's go all the way back to the Cameron years, so to speak. Um, David Cameron elected in 2010. Yep. And he ruled as prime minister for six years, mm -hmm. which now seems almost like an eternity, yeah. considering the, uh, the amount of changes we've had since. Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Cameron years. Um, you must have been quite young when David Cameron was elected. Yeah. So, you know, in spite of the fact I was probably, I think I would have been 12 years old when David Cameron became Prime Minister. And I remember the day very clearly when he and Nick Clegg were um, in, you know, in Parliament. Everyone was shocked. No one expected the Liberal Democrats to have gone in coalition with the Conservatives. But obviously, you know, a Labour-Liberal Democrat coalition would not have made a majority. The Liberal Democrats made the decision to then go in coalition with the Conservatives, which shocked many, as the Liberal Democrats back then were seen as a very much a centre-left, yeah, pretty much a centre-left party in coalition with the Tories, who hadn't been in power since, you know, until 1997, so it was quite a while back. So, yeah, I remember that very clearly, and when that coalition began, you know, David Cameron made his cabinet of George Osborne, Theresa May, and several others who have now, many have left politics completely. And, you know, that was quite an interesting six years of time. And the Conservative Party then, I would say, differs very much to the state of the Conservative Party now. Um, whilst under Cameron, particularly at the, you know, at the, well, throughout, until the whole Brexit debate came about, Cameron was pushing through, you know, many policies which people would not have expected from the Conservatives, many policies which were quite, from a social perspective, quite socially progressive, which is not where we see the Conservative Party now. You know, a lot of that might have been, or probably was because they have Liberal Democrats in coalition with them, um, which sort of, you know, moderate, made the Conservatives sort of more moderate and sort of more progressive than the Conservatives that people know. You know, let's remember, that before David Cameron, the Conservatives had um, Michael Howard as leader, and before that, at some point, Ian Duncan Smith, as well as William Hague, who were very much, well, maybe not William Hague too much, but very much definitely with Ian Duncan Smith and um, Michael Howard, the Conservative Party, which was very much on the right, both economically and socially. So then to have the Conservatives in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, where they're pushing through, you know, quite a more, for Conservatives, so quite a more sort of, liberalish agenda was sort of a surprise to many. And, you know, within a year, we obviously had the A, the alternative vote referendum, which Nick Clegg wanted in 2011, which the majority of the public voted against. That was obviously to change the voting system um, where we where we would have had, where we would have abolished first past the post and replaced it for an alternative vote system instead. You know, in that, that vote was in 2011. In 2011, we also had the tuition, the whole tuition fees um, drama, uh, where the Liberal Democrats obviously went into the 2010 general election saying that they would completely abolish tuition fees 
And then within a year, tuition fees had trebled from £3,000 to £9,000 for UK home students. So that was probably, you know, although we're mainly here to discuss Conservative rule, but obviously the coalition included the Liberal Democrats as well. That was probably a massive thing that many people might remember that coalition for, for trebling tuition fees, especially Liberal Democrats, who went in saying they'd abolish tuition fees, then to treble it. So, you know, that's how it sort of started within the first year or two. Very much a lot happened to the AV referendum and the tuition fees within a year or year and a half of, you know, Tory Le Dem coalition. So, yeah, that that's how it got off. And it was a very interesting time of politics, a very interesting period of politics as well. One of those metrics, those barometers that just shows how long, how long ago 2011 really is, is the fact that of all of the Liberal Democrats MPs who voted for that tuition fees rise, only two remain in Parliament. Of the total parliamentary party that was around at the time, uh, you would find one extra who voted against the tuition fees rise, who's still in Parliament. Ten years is a long time in politics, and this is 12 we're talking about. Back in the Stone Age of 2010, uh, the Conservatives took power amidst an economic crash. Gordon Brown was the Labour Prime Minister during a time when the global economic system fell apart. There was crisis in Greece, crisis in the United States. The European Union was discussing bailout packages for various countries over and over again. And it was in this backdrop that the Conservatives first took charge under David Cameron. And I got a sense at the time that they really wanted to sort of ease themselves in a bit further. That They came with this idea of, oh, we're here to fix the crisis and then, you know, once we fixed things, then we'll get round to making things perfect and brilliant and whatever. This is why I think they, at first, did try quite a lot to, to present themselves as being quite socially progressive. As, oh, we're not going to go after your rights, but we're going to, you know, fix the economy. And that's why we're going to do austerity and cut down all the spending and make sure that all of the books get balanced and save up and then go on to a next glorious new future. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's how it started. And I think you're, you're right, George. I think that's something to keep in mind is, of course, that, you know, David Cameron got in power at, really at the height of that, the, the 2008 financial crisis. And so it wasn't under the best of circumstances, um, quite similar really to today in this trust or in, in an uncanny way, uh, from one crisis to another uh, might be, how the book uh, is titled of the uh, of this period of conservatives prison, but regardless, I think it's an important uh, piece of information to frame sort of how the conservatives started this twelve year uh, mandate, and and I think it goes a long way into explaining austerity as well. Although a Labour government might have chosen a different path, and indeed austerity had got a lot of criticism then, uh, as it does now. I'm not entirely convinced it was uh, the best possible course of action. I know George Osborne certainly uh, championed its successes, but 12 years on, I can't really think there's much to say for Britain in which we can comfortably say, oh, austerity was definitely the right course of action. 
Um, regardless, the Conservatives took quite a hard line, quite a hard stance on that. But as Shakir said earlier, socially progressive. Now, is that because of that Lib Dem influence? Um, possibly. I also think we have to keep in mind that this was the first Conservative government after uh, many years of, of what's called New Labour, right, of Tony Blair and, of course, uh, Gordon Brown after that. And so I think that those years in opposition did really reshape the old conservatives of John Major and, of course, Margaret Thatcher, these towering figures, at least Thatcher was, and not necessarily fondly remembered either. So there had to be a change in the Conservative Party, and I think a, a long period of opposition allowed them to do that. And what they came up with was David Cameron and the coalition. It's essentially this blend of, uh, you know, Reagan-style um, right-wing trickle-down economics, or really, as it was with David Cameron, austerity economics. But then on the social front, we have remarkably progressive policies that, as Shakir said, nobody was really expecting. I would throw in there as well, um, same-sex marriage. Not, you know, I think that still raises some eyebrows when you explain to people uh, from abroad that, oh, yes, this, that was brought on under David Cameron and the Conservative Party, right? Um, because the Conservative, as the name might suggest, more of a traditionalist right-wing party. Uh, obviously, it's changed a lot since then, and we'll explore that in detail, particularly in the next topic that we're about to discuss. But I think, and here's where I have a bit of a soft spot for David Cameron, and I know I'm going to get grilled by both of you <laughs> here today, but I do have a bit That's of a soft already. spot. I do have a bit of soft spot for Cameron, and if I had to choose uh, any one of the periods of conservative uh, premierships in the period that we're discussing today, it would definitely be David Cameron. He gambled hard on the EU referendum, thinking it would go the way that the Scottish independence referendum went. I think he got a lot of slack for that, although personally, I take more the position that you can't really fault him for thinking the country would, would eventually you know, rally to to the a, a path that was by all accounts the you know the most economically stable uh, reliable uh, predictable and sane if you don't mind me saying so solution I mean it it's a bit awkward to say oh David Cameron should have never done that referendum because you know it, it's a democracy we should have referendums I don't think that is the problem I think neither should the prime minister have been essentially uh, blamed for trusting the public. So that's an awkward line of argument. Now, you could say it wasn't the right time. They, they didn't do enough of an effort of promoting the EU. And, and I completely agree that the referendum was half-hearted at best, an internal conservative power struggle at worst. But regardless, I don't know if David Cameron himself should be the one that we point our attention to, rather than the old conservative dinosaurs that have been waiting for this moment. And if you don't mind me saying, uh, quite uh, quite an ignorant discussion that took place by a, a British public that I think had been insulated from from real crisis such as we face today and um, and took a gamble that it didn't need to um, and so I have I, I pin most of uh, the result uh, on the British public rather than the government at that time. And I, and I will die on that cross. But uh, regardless, uh, this era also saw, of course, the death of Nick Clegg. Mm -hmm. So I've given a few sort of my remarks on the subject. Uh, Shakir, we'll take it back to you there is, afterwards. There so, is one counterpoint I would immediately point out of something to blame him for, which is not that he took the gamble, 
but that he was a gambler, full stop. He didn't just gamble you know, the European Union membership of the UK, but he also gambled the unity of the country as a whole with a referendum on independence for Scotland in 2014. He gambled on the he gambled on the relationship with the European Union before the the referendum, where he spent years and years going, "Oh, I'm going to negotiate this brand new deal with the EU, and they're going to do everything we got we want to say." He gambled with the basis of his, you know, his power in many ways with the AV referendum. He even gambled with you know people voting for him. It was a you know a global recession, and he decided to in the midst of that change tack with his party and have the party go for a message that it had not really tried before. So in one sense, I don't blame Cameron for the gamble of Brexit, but I do blame him for the fact that he just kept making gambles. You lose eventually at the casino. Well, you know, sort of a response to a point that Tom made, if you were to sort of pick one era of the Tories, you know, between 2010 and now, or even, even if we go back, yeah, between 2010 and now, I would, you know, definitely pick a Cameron-led government over Liz Truss or Boris or Theresa May. Now, I I identify centre-left. I'm, cent- I'm centre-left on, you know, political issues. However, I will definitely, you know, there were some good things that were achieved under the Tory Lib Dem coalition. And I think it's very easy for those of us who are on the left or to anywhere to the left or centre to automatically sort of condemn everything that has been done because, you know, obviously it wasn't a Labour government, obviously it was a Conservative government, but we do need to remember that, you know, as Tom also mentioned, same-sex marriage came about under a, under the Tory Lib Dem coalition. They were also, in 2014, an MP, a backbench MP, Jane Ellison, who represented Battersea, submitted a um, proposal for IVF through three parents, or three-parent embryos, which is, again, quite a progressive policy and something you wouldn't expect under a Conservative government, and David Cameron supported that. So there were some many, you know, very socially liberal policies that were there. However, we must not take away from the fact about the gambling that you mentioned. You know, I think for him to enable an AV referendum, I think that was good, although it didn't, it ended up being a shambles. And obviously we still have first past the post, but I think the main fact he held that referendum was a good thing. Um, With the Scottish referendum, again, I wouldn't put the blame on him for that. There was a lot of, you know a lot of bad feeling, just to say, in Scotland around that time, surrounding Scotland's position in the United Kingdom. And I think that he actually held a referendum. I credit you know, him for that. And he ended up winning the referendum. If he'd lost it, he would have had to resign at that stage, which would have been before Brexit. And I also remember back in 2014 as well, when that Scottish referendum was held, that there were people in Catalonia, Catalonia, Spain, mm. who were... <coughs> you know, protesters pro-Catalonia um, independence, they were holding up fo- um, images of David Cameron sort of trying to protest. So I think it would have been Mariano Rajoy, who would have been Prime Minister of Spain at that time, saying, look, in Scotland, well, in Britain, they gave Scotland a referendum. You know, why don't Spain give Catalonia? There was somewhere else in the world, I think, who also referred to Cameron giving that referendum, that free vote, that opportunity for Scottish people to actually decide whether they wish to be in the UK or whether they wish to be independent. Now, later on, when we speak about Theresa May, we can also question as to whether the Scots should have been, Scottish people should have been given a referendum after the EU 
referendum mm-hmm. because that changed, you know, 73% of Scotland voted to remain in the EU and they were dragged out of it. So we can come on to that later. But again, I commend Cameron for that. I also, I'll come on to Brexit in a minute. You know, there are many issues which I disagree with Cameron on, particularly relating to economic issues. Let's not forget the bedroom tax that they tried to put, that they put forward, you know, where people who were living in, I believe it was people who were living in social housing would have a bedroom removed from them if that bedroom is not being occupied by anyone. Now, you know, again, that is another policy that hits the cruelest and hits quite a cruel policy, which hits the poorest in society. Um, And there was a lot of that, you know, austerity and the amount of the amount of cuts that were going on between 2010 and 2015. Absolutely. The level of cuts were massive, you know, and I especially when we had 13 years of Labour, albeit new Labour, who invested a lot into children's centres, into schools, into the NHS. And we had the Cameron government, you know, sort of dismantling it. George Osborne and Jeremy Hunt, you know, making cut after cut to the NHS and the budget as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that I definitely do not commend Cameron or the coalition on whatsoever. Uh, The little minor point, what would one like to say is, I was saying he was gambling, uh, that didn't imply good or bad. Right. Uh, some of those things were things I, I personally really liked. Others were things I personally didn't like. But from the point of view of you know trying to maintain power, from the point of view of you are David Cameron, you are a prime minister for the Conservative Party, you know all, all those things I listed off would still be gambles. Mm. And there's something there's something charming about gambles. You know, in, in the United States, they have this this sort of um, sounding poll question, which is, you know, they're, they're usually in an election, who ends up winning the presidency is the people, the person, the, the president, sorry, that most people would want to share a beer with. Sort of this all-round, you know, bellwether sort of question. And to extrapolate that to David Cameron, it's like, would I have a beer with David Cameron back then? Yes, I would. Probably still today. Um you know, if I was in front of Liz Truss, I'd probably drink pure poison. <laughs> but um, regardless, I think he did have a personability. He, he was charming. He was a gambler. I agree with George. Um, you know, it was all fine. And uh, whilst that was working out, then eventually, of course, the, the outright conservative majority, uh, when the EU referendum was promised as part of their election manifesto. And I think that's, that's a good that's a good place to sort of start us off for, for the next topic that we'll get into, because I think in a way, and, and you'll both have a chance to correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but I think it's impossible to understand um, the next, how many years is it, um, seven, eight years of conservative rule, if it wasn't for the EU referendum, right, from the moment that that was promised, from the moment that the conservatives won their outright uh, election, and David Cameron too, uh, in which there was no Lib Dem coalition, and let's say the real, the real conservative, uh, you know, years within these twelve years, and of course Brexit fundamentally altered the Conservative Party, and we wouldn't have the other um, prime ministers that we'll be talking about in a moment if it wasn't for that. Uh, you know, UK history would have looked quite different should that referendum result have been what was it, fifty-two, fifty-three percent remain rather than the other way around. And um, but anyway. Uh, Let's head to the next prime minister that we've had, uh, Theresa May, and we'll lump her together with Boris Johnson in what in what we can call the uh, 
the wrangling out the Brexit details years, <laughs> 2016 to, uh, to well, to this year, really, yeah. to the ousting yeah. of Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. These were the two Brexit prime ministers, mm -hmm. the two prime ministers we had to guide the ship through the stormy waters of whatever Brexit means. Uh, still haven't figured that one out. But uh, there's a lot to talk about for this period. Um, so let's start with the 2017 general election yeah. and what that meant. And Shakir, you can take it yep. off and George will follow well, obviously, you know, after after the Cameron ministry, Cameron resigned in 2016 following the vote of leave. And we were led, left with Theresa May, who was the prime minister to deliver Brexit. She held a general election in April, no, in June the 8th, 2017, I very much believe. And obviously, when she called that election, everyone was expecting her to win by a massive majority. You know, Labour led by Jeremy Corbyn, who was not popular in the polls, who was seen as a very a very much polarising character at that point. And, you know, May went into that referendum, probably, sorry, went into that general election, probably expecting 380 seats, 360 seats, whatever, whatever, but obviously did not turn out that way. Now, that 2017 general election, in my opinion, personally, was nowhere near as exciting as 2015, um, as it was sort of, 2017 was very much focused on the two parties, it was either Labour's and Corbyn for the many, not the few, and the Conservatives. I, I don't, I don't remember their um, slogan at the time, but very strong much strong and stable. There you go, strong and stable under Theresa May. It was, it was very much focused on those two. Unlike 2015, where we had, you know, will the Liberal Democrats get enough seats for a coalition again? Will the SNP? How much? How many seats will the SNP win? And that seven-way debate, 2017 was very much the two of them you know, Labour versus Tory. And May went in there expecting a massive majority and she didn't get that. And Labour had won some seats, which they had never won in the past, such as Kensington, such as Canterbury, um, and several others. I think Battersea was one of them. They'd won Battersea in the past under Blair, but it was very unexpected. And the reason as to why Labour won those seats was they were pro-EU voting, Vote. I'd say those constituencies, I'd describe them as socially liberal, economically centre-right to right, but socially very liberal and very pro-EU. And those people who were sort of, you know, their outlook on life in terms of immigration, they see the benefits of immigration, they're very much pro, you know, integrating with other countries and have quite a liberal outlook in life. Although some of them who might vote conservative due to their economic views, they opted for a Jeremy Corbyn-led government, a socialist, you know, which is what Jeremy Corbyn was, over their usual vote of the Conservatives, because they were very much pro-EU, they voted Remain, and they were probably upset and disgusted by the way that under Theresa May, you know, how Brexit was going. Not only were we looking to leave the EU, she was in a rush to invoke Article 50, and it was unclear as to whether we'd believe with no deal, with a hard Brexit, what that would mean for Northern Ireland, what that would mean for so many things. Many people who had voted Tory and were pro-EU sort of ditched voting Conservative, and many voted Labour for that. And as a result, Labour did very well in that election, surprisingly. You know, Corbyn unexpectedly looked like the winner of the election, although he obviously didn't win and obviously the Conservatives had more seats. It led to a situation where, you know, David Cameron's 2015 general election was, I believe, 331 seats for the Conservatives. They then went down to, I don't remember the exact figure, but they definitely lost, 
you know, I'd say somewhere between 15, 26, I can't remember the exact number. And it led to a situation where Theresa May was not able to form a majority. So she had to go to the DUP in Northern Ireland to get a deal where, you know, where they would back them up on many of their votes. And Theresa May was in effect leading minority government. So the 2017 election was very much a surprise and an unexpected one. You know, many thought Corbyn was weak. And as he was, you know, he was performing very badly in the polls. I remember some weeks in the lead up, you know, once Theresa May had become prime minister, Corbyn was performing so, so badly in the polls. It looked like Labour were going to do even worse under him than they did under Ed Miliband. You know, Ed Miliband lost 48 seats. People were probably expecting Corbyn to lose even more in the 2017 general election. And he surprised us all and took the result to, you know, to a situation where the Tories didn't have a majority. So that election was a very surprising one to many. And throughout, and his campaign throughout the general election, it's like he improved week on week and, you know, sort of showing a bit more grit and a bit more passion and something we hadn't expected from Corbyn, as well as May not looking good at all. You know, her sort of repeating phrases such as will of the people and strong and stable government, but not really coming out with many clear policies. You know, that I believe was a reason for Labour doing better than expected and the Tories really not doing well in that 2017 general election. You mentioned, Thomas, about how the, you know, the personality, you know, would you sit down with a beer factor uh, is so important in general elections. And I think 2017 very, very much demonstrated that. You know, Ed Miliband and David Cameron, yeah. At the time, most people would thought would have thought eh, Ed Miliband may be a little weird. Vote for vote for Ed for Theresa May. This was, of course, the dark days before we knew what Ed Miliband was like without his handlers. Uh, Theresa May, on the other hand, most people generally had a thought of alien from space to no a robot. No, thank you. Now, Jer- now Jeremy Corbyn wasn't didn't perform very highly in that either. Uh, he was very much underperforming on, you know, the personality ratings. He was considered to be, you know, less prime ministerial. But he was up against someone who also was none of those things. And then when it came, and so then it became more of a battle of policy. And Theresa May attacked her own voters with uh, a proposal to uh, hike up the uh, was it the taxes on pensions something to that effect. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn just played to his base a lot and promised them all the things that they wanted to hear. So it ended up being a vote of turnout. You know, a seat like Canterbury, which was where I was living at the time, had always had a large student body in it, but those students didn't vote because they weren't very enthusiastic. Come around 2017, Tory voters are staying at home because the prime minister is saying things that go against their interests. And the students are all incredibly enthusiastic to to vote because Jeremy Corbyn's saying everything they want to hear. All of this in the backdrop of Brexit, which motivated people from both sides to you know turn out, vote for vote for sort of like you know more extreme candidates, and you get what you get: a narrowly split minority government to represent a country that was split right down the middle by the EU referendum. 
Anna mm-hmm. Theresa May, who then had to spend the next couple of years figuring out how to deliver the undeliverable with the help of some Northern Irish friends. Yes, Northern Irish friends, which ended up having a lot more influence over to how that Brexit was managed, or should I say mismanaged, uh, than anybody would have uh, predicted uh, previously. These were the years of Conservative government that I think can be succinctly defined by power struggles, both internal and with the opposition. Gridlock and very little getting done. Uh, It seemed like the House of Lords was in the news every other week Mm. for stopping a bill. Um, And very much an impasse uh, at the government level, but at the social level, as to what exactly Brexit meant. Overnight, we had voted for the seminal breaking of our relationship with our not only our largest trading partner, but the continent, more or less. Um, and there was, a, there was a great feeling of uncertainty, uh, but also of something that I think Britain never really experienced before, not least since the Second World War, um, this feeling of, of fanaticism, factionalism, and ideology. All of a sudden, there were these hard Brexiteers uh, and the you know Facebook and social media became the battlegrounds for uh, quite diverse points of view, quite some fairly extreme uh, about immigration and 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 other topics, which often became nasty. Um, it didn't end with Brexit. If anything, I think it riled up afterwards. And the prime ministership of both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, I think these years can be defined as. It's a nasty place politically for Britain, where populism reared its head, particularly under the guise of Boris Johnson. Um, and, um, and factionalism in day-to-day life, people uh, were more likely to identify with their position on Brexit than any one political party, something which may very well be still true as of recording this today. Um, our relationship with Europe broke down. I think it hasn't been recovered yet. I think they're still waiting to figure out what, what Liz Truss is all about. Mm. I think even she doesn't really know, so good luck. But um, our relationship with Europe nevertheless suffered. I think it's evolved from that now. I think uh, the, Euro- the countries of the European Union probably won't call us for help on international issues. We're very much now a rogue outcast in our own continent. Um, and so these years were, as I see them, particularly damaging for Britain. But what... You know, my question, which I haven't been able to figure out, and maybe both of you can shed a bit of light here today, is, as Shakir was explaining, the 2017 general election saw, um, you know, this chanting of uh, Jeremy Corbyn by students at, um, you know, um, Glastonbury, wherever it was. Um, You know, there was this much hyped sort of return of this new Labour, which was for the people, uh, or sorry, for the many, not the few, um, or was that a conservative slogan? No, yeah, Labour for but, many of the few. For many of the few. And, um, and, you know, this, this, it seemed like Labour was on this, in this unstoppable momentum. And then the 2019 general election, wow, what a resounding defeat. So what exactly happened? You know, I, I hear a lot, of, a lot of the blame placed on Jeremy Corbyn himself for the 2019 election. But how does that hold up to the fact that the 2017 general election, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn himself had so much to play with that as, as a part of that, sorry. Um, and then people say, well, it's the policies. Mm. But how can a country in 2019 facing such hardship, such uncertainty, not vote for, you know, probably what was the most solidly 
left-wing manifesto that we've ever had. You know, clearly a manifesto meant to to ail a suffering people, as as we saw uh, in the 2019 election. So this is something that confuses me, and I think it's still to this day I don't really understand what happened in the 2019. How on earth the country could ever vote for Boris Johnson, a buffoon that I mean, we didn't need him kicked out of office by his own party to understand exactly what he was. It was obvious from day one. From you know that video of him holding the British flag through his, through his zip. I mean, he's, yeah. he's a buffoon. There's no polite yeah. polite way of saying it. Uh, you know, I hope even conservative, long lifelong conservative British people would agree. Oh my God, what an embarrassment! Mm. Um, regardless of it, how your views align with Boris Johnson or not, as a figure, he was tragic. He is still, and so this is this is really. A, a, an open question mark, and I, I assume the only way that we can answer it is precisely through Brexit. It got so ideological, people got so riled up about it, we became so, excuse my French, Latin American almost about the issue, populist to the core, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kill for this, or die on this, on this cross. Uh, that we were willing to vote even the most absurd of politicians as long as he promised Brexit. And if the other one is a bit, uh, you know, uncanny or neutral or, uh, or you know, silenced about it, as Jeremy Corbyn was sort of playing the, on, to both sides on Brexit, as I understand it, uh, we won't vote him because we'll go with the devil we know. So does, do you think that does justice or do you see things differently? I think, you know, obviously the point about the difference between 2017 and 2019. Now, from what I remember, Labour's manifesto in 2017 and 2019 was very similar to each other. And, you know, there are so many reasons I think Labour didn't do well in 2019, but they did in 2017. I feel like in 2017, they were against Theresa May and she was very, she was looking very weak during that referendum. And then along comes Boris, you know. We obviously all see, we obviously regard Boris as a buffoon. I've never liked the guy. But do remember, he won... The 2008 mayoral election for London mayor, as well as the 2012 London mayoral election. Now, London's a city which generally votes Labour, a socially liberal city, which, you know, generally overwhelmingly votes Labour. But Johnson found a way to win two mayoral elections. So there is a likability factor for him among many. You know, many people, well, not now, but at that stage, you know, especially when he was mayor and especially during those elections, there were many who really took to Boris. You know, I never liked him myself, but there were many who did. And I feel Boris going at that general election gave the Tories a new sense of energy, a new sense of, you know, sort of desire to to win back voters. You know, let's remember that Boris in that 2019 election, he won three, I believe, 365 constituencies. That was higher than Cameron, that was higher than, you know, May, of course, and he won some constituencies which were always Labour, you know, those heartlands in the Midlands, those heartlands sort of, um, I think many, some of them maybe in the Northwest or Northeast, which were always, always Labour, which then went to Conservatives because of Brexit. And Boris was seen as the figure to be the person who will definitely get Brexit done. And I think Corbyn's sort of, oh, yeah, you know, for the many or the few, getting students excited, getting um, socially liberal Tories excited. I think that sort of died down by 2019. 2017, it was kind of fresh, and Brexit, the whole Brexit negotiations had just started. But 
I don't think it, it didn't, it wasn't good enough for the, for the majority of the electorate come 2019, as well as the fact that Boris was seen as the one who will get Brexit done. So many people, the same way that in 2017, many lifelong Tories who were socially progressive ended up voting Labour, the same way in 2019, many kind of socially conservative Brexit voting Labour supporters, many in the Northern and Midlands heartlands, former Labour heartlands, then went Tory. So well, I think a lot of it was just down to the energy that Boris gave and the sort of passion. And as Tom, as you mentioned, you know, people are identifying closer with their position on Brexit than the party they support. So lifelong Labour people were then willing to vote Conservative with the dream or with the aim of finally getting Brexit done. Also remember that the EU referendum happened on June the 23rd, 2016, and the 2019 general election was in December 2019. So this is three and a half years later, Brexit still hadn't got done, you know, for various reasons. And I remember I was, um, when Brexit had just happened, I was involved with many pro-EU groups, groups who wanted to fight against Brexit and get us back into the EU. And many of them in 2017, went to Liberal Democrat versus Conservative constituencies and helped the Liberal Democrats there. And a few also went to Labour versus Tory constituencies and helped Labour there. But by 2019, they didn't. So that kind of passion from the pro-EU groups also sort of died out as well. And that's fewer canvases that Labour and the Liberal Democrats had on the ground, whereas the Tories had energised all of these sort of Brexit voters. And you know, also in 2017, UKIP were still a thing because Brexit hadn't got done. By 2019, they had died out, become the Brexit party or, no, 2019, they'd become the party. Farage had, party's name was in reform and they... The Brexit party still back then. In 2019? Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, yeah, so the Four Brexit party. And they didn't, have, they didn't have the same appeal to Brexit voters that UKIP did. Um, and many who voted, who might have voted UKIP back in 2015, and to some extent might have still voted UKIP in 2017, did not vote for the Brexit party at that, to that extent in 2019. They all got behind Boris, and they saw him as the person who would get Brexit done. So in a Labour-Tory marginal, that is a few extra votes for the Conservatives, which helped Boris you know, achieve the 365 constituencies that he won. So I, I feel that's the main difference between 2019 and 2017. There was a, there was also a very, very huge difference between UKIP and the Brexit Party in 2017 and 2019, which was that in 2019, the Brexit Party ordered its candidates in seats held by Conservative Brexiteers to stand down. And because of that, in hundreds and hundreds of seats across the country, there were no Brexit Party candidates. Uh, and that generally fell in line with what had happened across the country. As he said, people identified more closely with their Remain or Leave position than with any parties. When Theresa May took, up, took charge uh, after 2017, she was tasked with delivering Brexit, but found that Brexit entailed, essentially it entailed sacrifices, it entailed doing things that were really, really not desirable. Northern Ireland's the perfect example. The, the question of the backstop, as they call it, has still not been solved. It's frankly unsolvable in many ways. Uh, so Theresa May spent a lot of time trying to fix these problems, trying to fix, find some magic solution to the backstop. 
until and while this is all happening, you know, there's more and more infighting, more and more arguments, because then everyone goes, oh, well, I have the magic solution to fix this problem. I'm saying this because I'm not the one who has to implement it, but I, but trust me, bro, I totally know what to do. And eventually, you know, one faction in the Conservative Party went enough. We're gonna just do no deal. They put Boris Johnson in charge, who, you know, even though you don't like him personally, a lot of people do as a person. Like even journalists and other politicians consistently describe him as being very charming in person. You see him on the cameras and he handles questions very well. He even had to fight scandals, you know, in a way that is superficially pretty charming. And so you bring him up against, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, magic grandpas they come up to calling him by then. You know, a crotchety old man, no matter what you no matter what you, you know, whether you like him or not. And so, yeah, there you have it again. You've got the likability factor. You've got the fact that the country was so very, very divided. And Boris Johnson was running on the slogan of get Brexit done. He was was going to say, you know, even if it's a no deal, I'm just going to do it. Meanwhile, on the opposite end, the Remainers, they were all split. In 2017, they rallied behind the Labour Party with the idea of, oh, well, they're the, com- the ones that are the most likely to deliver you know, an acceptable result. By 2019, attitudes had hardened, and some factions of the Remain vote went, well, actually, we want to go back into the EU entirely. So, jo- so we're going to join the Liberal Democrats. Others went for the Green Party, and others still stayed with Labour. The end result? The vote was extremely divided on the Remain side, while the vote was extremely united on the Brexit side, and it was united behind Boris Johnson. Hence why he got an 80-seat majority. A lot of it won in places that had traditionally been Labour seats, but which had voted for Brexit, like the Red Wall, as they call it, in the north of England. And and do you think, do you think, because obviously one thing you mentioned was that uh, either the Brexit Party or the Brexit Party were encouraging, they were not fielding candidates in places which had a Brexit-supporting Conservative candidate. Do you think that had Labour and the Lib Dems agreed some informal or even form, formal or informal progressive alliance, that 2019's result then could have been different? Undoubtedly. Like, it's not even a question in my mind. that There were absolutely, like, there was one seat I remember where the difference between the Tory uh, winner and the Labour you know, loser was less than 200 votes, while the Lib Dems had about 3,000. You know, there were seats like that across the country, mm-hmm. and some, and there were, and likewise also with the Brexit Party. You know, it's it's been estimated that the Brexit Party hadn't run in Labour seats. Tories could have picked up another 20 or 30 more. Regardless, for me, it doesn't excuse really how much vote that the Conservative Party got under Boris Johnson to begin with. And I think that there's, you know, both of you had have, have answered, you know, why that is the case in, in good detail. I think I agree with you, George, as well, that, you know, but Boris Johnson at, at the time had this, this charming drinkability factor, especially at the time and in the context of this Brexit that was quickly going nowhere. 
And in typical British fashion, you know, I think what really appealed to the electorate for Boris Johnson is this kind of no deal, all guns out blaring, charging rhinoceros of a man, um, you know, blaring this false confidence, uh, you know, had an answer for everything, bit of a char charlatan, um, you know, again, the Latin American comparison to kind of a, a dictator in chief, you know, um, who was this big, admir admirable sort of larger-than-life towering persona, um, you know, illegally having lockdown parties and the like. And, and eventually that that caught up to him, right, because it's completely at odds with how the Westminster government is, is set up, which is essentially one in which there's constant negotiation. You have, you know, two chambers of houses. One is unelected uh, uh, with a great deal of power. And, you know, the, the whole thing functions as long as there is... Uh, you know, coherent leadership, and you must keep your backbench at all times. And Boris Johnson couldn't even do that, and he was never going to be able to do that because we we sort of vote the 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 perfect make believe answer to the make believe problem, right? I mean, Brexit could have only ever ended up with a Brexit commander in chief that was as reckless and foolish as it ever was. And so you have to, these years are very much in the context of Brexit. And, you know, I think you'd be right, instead of calling them the May and year and, and Boris Johnson years, you could even call them the Brexit years, the fumbling of Brexit years. Mm. And they led to, to trust moving on a little bit. Um, a shorter segment, of course, because this trust is, is on the US Prime Minister and she's only been uh, sworn into office um, uh, for a matter of, of weeks. And so there's not much we know about her, except, of course, the anecdote by which we began uh, our podcast today. Uh, and she's already fumbling. But I think it's important looking back in history to see how we arrived at Trust, who, although a Boris Johnson loyalist, nevertheless took over from him. I'm not sure if they're on friendly terms now. Um, but one of her first moves, of course, is mini-budget, sort of makes me wonder whether... Uh, you know, she she picked up support where she needed it to ensure her victory, but that support is is part of that reckless, uh, ultra entitled and privileged lot um, that explains Brexit and Boris Johnson so well. Uh, this this these people at the very top, perhaps Tory donors, uh, unnamed, unspecified, at <laughs> some gentleman's club somewhere doing misogynistic things. Uh, and uh, this crew of people said, right, okay, we want you to basically tear down the safeguards of the economy and make it all about us. And it doesn't matter what the ramifications are. You know, Let the whole shit burn and sink uh, as long as we make a profit out of it, which I think uh, you know, explains Brexit quite neatly. Fool the masses and keep the riches. And well, what does Liz Trust do? One of her very first in office? Okay, let's get the, the entire market spiraling out of control, the IMF against us. Uh, you know, cut cut taxes on uh, companies, and you know, uh, let, let's get rid of um, what is it, bonus uh, limitations Caps for, for bankers? For, for bankers. Yeah. You know, just this stuff of nightmares, really. Yeah. You think how on earth did we arrive at that? Well, a lot of it is fooling the public. A lot of it is Brexit. A lot of it is riding on the coattails of this fantasy that was never going to work out, and and essentially, in my opinion, uh, appealing to the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Making as many wild promises about glorious Britannia and the days of past, and you know the ship against impossible odds, and we'll make it, lads, and all the rest. You know the the buffoonery that was. Um, 
And and somehow we end up with Liz Trust, this almost reptilian sort of monster that you couldn't explain otherwise. Mm. I think she's trying a bit of that Boris Johnson bravado because she she rightly figures out that if she's going to have a shot at this, she needs that tried and tested conservative formula of um you know, keep the gravy train running of the whole Brexit thing. Just keep provoking Europe into more headlines so that she can take on this mantle of the, you know, charge ahead lads uh, with the bayonet mm-hmm. and, you know, keep the voters happy with with sort of this, this sugar-coated, uh, you know, nationalism, for lack of a better word. And, but will she be able to do that? Well, First of all, you know, just an introdu- as an introduction on Liz Truss, because you asked at the start, we don't really know much about her. And people are, well, Liz Truss, obviously, 20, 30 years, or maybe even, yeah, 20, 30 years back, was a Liberal Democrat. Uh, she used to be a Liberal Democrat member. Her parents were Labour um, voters. And then she ended up in David Cameron's A-list, uh, which was sort of the names of MPs that David Cameron had as sort of tip to be future Tory stars, you know, back in 2009-10, she was on that A-list and she was in the Cameron cabinet and she seemed, you know, to many to have been sort of going along that same sort of more moderate, more modernising Tory faction back then. But now, you know, there's nothing modernising or moderate about her and she's gone from Liberal Democrat to sort of moderate Tory to sort of very much perched on the right, you know, a darling of the right wing of the Tory party. You know, you look at who backed her in the Tory leadership. Nadine Dorries and Jacob Rees-Mogg were two of her biggest supporters, you know, two of who are very much extreme right-wing conservative MPs. And, you know, the fact that that's now the kind of company who is supporting her and, you know, her to make a cabinet and put people like Suella Braverman in her cabinet. Okay, Priti Patel was, was removed from the cabinet. She was an extremist Tory, extreme Tory as well. But now with Suella Braveman, another extreme Tory. Also, Jacob Rees-Mogg has had a more senior role than I think Boris and Theresa May gave him, another extreme Tory. And there's, there's a list of, you know, several names of extreme Tory MPs who Liz Truss has in her cabinet. Now, Boris Johnson did that too, but she's done it. She's had, she has even more of that. Here's even more of them, and, it's, and it sort of shows the sort of inward-looking, very much, you know, sometimes when I see her speak and see some of the people she has in her cabinet, it reminds me of something that belongs in the 18th or 19th century. You know, she's. it seems as if she's really turning back the clock. And earlier we were speaking about Cameron and, you know, how there were very much some socially liberal policies that were being put forward, especially for coalitions liberal de- under the coalition um with the Liberal Democrats, but now it's like a Conservative Party, which is unrecognisable from the Conservative Party 10, 12 years ago. And, you know, what do I expect from Liz Truss? Well, on economic issues as well, she's now cut tax for people earning above 150,000, especially at a time where, you know, the energy prices are soaring, where so many people, especially the poorest of society, uh, really, really feeling it at the moment. And she's cutting taxes for those earning above 150,000. Does that make any sense whatsoever? It is absolutely, I don't know, this is a period, a very dangerous period for the country. And those who voted Brexit, uh, you know, Brexit Britain wasn't just leaving the EU. It was so many things that those who wanted to leave the EU wanted. It seems as if that's what we've got now. And I think these are very dangerous times that we're living under 
uh, with Liz Truss as our prime minister. And I feel as if the moderate sort of the, the small, like the moderate wing of the Tory party has died or is dying and dying more and more and more, you know, obviously the conservatives had, um, Penny Mordaunt as one of their candidates who sort of, who was seen towards the start as one of the more moderate Tories, you know, she did not get elected. Um, we, we end up with Liz Truss and, and even some of the other candidates who put their names forward, who got ousted out towards the start were very much on the extreme ring of the Tory party as well. And we've not seen that. We've not seen that anywhere near as much in the last 12 years, you know, um, it, it seems like an, an, a Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng, Suella Braveman and Jacob Rees-Mogg government seems so much different to how it started off, you know, with the Conservatives, with Nick Clegg, George Osborne, Danny Alexander and um, Vince Cable, for example, um, and obviously David Cameron leading it. It, it, it now seems as if the Conservatives have really, really moved to the right. And I don't expect... You know, for as long as Liz Truss is Prime Minister, I don't expect her to be doing anything moderate or in any sense sensible anytime soon. And irrespective of where people are politically, I think we can now really, really look at Liz Truss and think, you know, someone might be a Conservative Party vote and think, does does she really have the credibility to be a Prime Minister, regardless what you think of her policies? You know, just looking at her CV and looking at, how she's doing things to the extent that we get criticised by the IMF, you know, which is not something I've heard, not something I've heard that has ever happened in the United Kingdom. You know, I think it's very dangerous times and yeah, it's, it's not, things are looking very bad here. The Conservative Party under Boris Johnson won an 80 seat majority and then they took the poison that has happened to so many parties in the past is that they got complacent. They had the thought of, oh, well, we've got, an 80-seat majority, nothing could ever topple us. We'll be in charge for 10 more years. Then a global pandemic comes around, and Boris Johnson, with that complacent arrogance, thinks that the very pandemic rules that he is putting in place to deal with the coronavirus pandemic don't apply to him personally. So we had scandal after scandal where he's throwing birthday parties in number 10 Downing Street while hundreds of people are dying of COVID, you know, in our hospitals. People, you know, various allies of his kept coming up with, you know, criminal or, you know, unspeakable acts to their names. And Boris Johnson kept coming to bat for them, thinking, well, you know, but they're a good friend of mine. So, and the public's on our side. It's going to be okay. Eventually, of course, the public t- will turn on you. And that's what it did. The war in Ukraine has has made life worse in you no know, for many people. You know, energy prices are shooting up. Yes, there's been a breakdown in the global supply chain. Yes, and there's also COVID. Lots of people that we know have died and directly died because the Conservative Party was unable to deal with it properly and were openly displaying that they didn't care about the rules that they were putting in place. They were making our lives so much worse. You know, it, speaking personally, part of the reason why I was not able to attend a loved one's funeral was because of these rules. So, yeah, Boris Johnson lost the support of the public and he lost the support of a lot of you know, his own party members. 
And so Boris Johnson started to do the the cardinal sin for a prime minister, which was losing by-elections and losing councils. And he just kept losing and losing and losing. So the party replaced him and put in charge Liz Truss. But the problem is, uh, no, among the many, many problems that Liz Truss is inheriting is the fact that when you poll Conservative Party members, their first choice is actually very clear. They still want Boris Johnson. <laughs> uh, and the public has reacted, you know, in part. You know, the party members want Boris Johnson, and they think Liz Truss is, some, is someone who's just foisted upon them without an election. The public co- concludes this is someone that's been foisted upon them without an election and is saying all these massively out of touch and unpopular things. And so they've turned against them. Uh, at the moment, there's a, just this morning, you go put out a poll uh, suggesting that the Labour Party has a 33-point lead against the Conservatives. So what do you do when you have a government which is almost certainly going to lose because it's 33 points behind? Well, in many cases, what you do is sabotage. You you sort of you put in like all those last things you desperately wanted to do, but you know are going to be unpopular, and you poison the well against the next you know for the next party, and that's how I'm seeing this mini budget. You know, throw lots and lots of money at all our friends while we still can. The budget problems, the you know, deficit, cost of living, housing, all of those are problems that Labour can solve when they inevitably win the next election. Have fun, guys! I got to be prime minister, and you didn't. See, George, I don't know if the if essentially the, the the Tory party rebelling against their own prime minister, getting rid of Boris Johnson to replace him, was an act of desperation or, or some kind of tactical thing. Because on the one hand, you could say, well, they're concerned about his increasingly problematic behaviour. So if we have any chance of winning the next election, we need some a fresh start, which makes sense. But on the other hand, you look at the polls, as you've just said, the Conservative members still prefer Boris Johnson. And so if they knew that, is that actually telling us that the Tory party's games sort of caught up to them? They created uh, this this thing called Brexit, which, you know, we didn't really need. And it's increasingly nakedly obvious that it's just pointless, um, even to the people that voted for it, whether they'll admit so or not. Um, and then out of that came the monster of Boris Johnson. And then eventually it caught up to them thinking, gosh, you know, we really have somebody in charge that can't lead, you know, a serious first world economy. So get rid of him. So, and, and I'm stuck between the two. It could be both of them. I don't know. But either way, whether whatever gamble they try to pull off, as you've just said, a 33-point lead, it hasn't worked. And it most likely won't at the next general election, which is precisely Liz Truss's problem. Because as Shakir said, she sort of inherited all of these problems of Boris Johnson and Theresa May, etc. And inherited is a good word because she wasn't elected, right? And this is the confusing thing that we don't directly vote for prime ministers as Americans do for a president. But regardless, it's become this sort of personality contest just as much as across the pond. And so in a way, we kind of do expect to have a prime minister that is personally and directly liable to the population even if the system isn't quite like that. And this presents a problem for this trust because anything quite 
um, daring that she might do before a general election, well, that's going to be a bit like Theresa May's problem, that you need to have that mandate. Otherwise, you face the problem of revolt because you're not seen as legitimate. And I think Liz Truss, I mean, she's already done so with this, with the mini budget, um, which kind of gives credence to what George was saying. It's kind of just throwing everything into the ring, saying we're going to lose the next election, it's poison the world, as he just said. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think what also will be a problem for Liz Truss personally is that if she does that, she has no hope in hell to win the next general which every politician wants to, right? They want to remain in power as long as possible. That's the name of the game. And so I'm not sure what she's really playing at in as far as does she expect to to lead a next election and win it? Has she given up hope entirely? Is she not really calling the shots anymore? Mm-hmm. Because whoever got rid of Boris Johnson is now kind of holding the strings at, at the mannequins at the back, which might be the case. I think there's a lot of questions at the moment. Um, we witnessed something remarkable, which is the ousting of a prime minister by their own party after winning um, a no-confidence vote. Uh, you know, unexplainable. And now we've ended up with Liz Truss, who's intent, it seems, on breaking the British economy uh, for the favour of her backers. Um, it, it's a confusing time to be living, but quite clearly, at some point, she's going to be needing that fresh mandate. And she's got 12 years of Tory rule to answer for, whether she likes it or not. And I think by sticking her guns as a a Boris Johnson loyalist, she's going to have a very difficult time convincing the British public that we're essentially getting somehow something new with her. I think what will more likely be the case is that she reckons her lot is solidly with the Brexit fantasy, which means uh, appealing to them the way that Boris Johnson did. But her problem now, is that as we drag on increasingly in time after Brexit, it now can fool nobody just how pointless of an exercise it was. There's no sunny uplands. There's no global, whatever the slogan they throw at you, global Britain, whatever it was. Um, There's nothing but catastrophe. And it's not even COVID anymore. It's just quite simply never going to work out economically to shun your largest trading partner. And you just can't replace one with these fancy, uh, you know, overnight trade deals with the US, that was never going to happen. They were told over and over again, um, you know. And sure, you might have some stubborn people that still think, you know, Brexit's going to pay their mortgage off or something. I don't know. It's, But increasingly, there's less of them. And I think something about human psychology is that we'll do anything except admit we were wrong. That's, you know, you can't, people don't do that, Uh, especially the more committed they are to an ideal. So what's more likely is that that it will fade rather than crash. And that's a big problem for Liz Truss. She wants to beat the drums of Brexit and, oh, what's, you know, Jonker's doing? I mean, he's not even in there anymore, but (laughs) what what are those Eurocrats doing? And, you know, the tired old thing that Boris Johnson did. But it may not work anymore as people start to realise, you know, well, I'm not going to admit it, but this Brexit thing's just complete malarkey. Mm. And so that's going to be a big problem for her. She can't answer for 12 years of Tory rule. She can't answer for the miracle of Brexit around the corner. She's got almost nothing left to draw upon to win the next election. And so, yeah, take it away. Well, looking at looking at election polls, Labour predict, predict, uh, Labour predicted the majority. And I've not seen any poll that has predicted Labour a majority. 
a majority, not even Labour winning, but Labour winning with a majority. I've not seen that predicted since before 2010. That is crazy. This is, this is you know, almost 12, 13 years and how that has happened. And personally, and this might sound quite controversial, as much as I would love, you know, Labour to win the next general election, or at least to have a Labour Liberal Democrat coalition. I genuinely cannot see it happening. Although all the polls are saying it's going to happen and Labour's going to win a majority. I would love that to be the case. Of course I would. But I cannot see it happening. I really cannot see when voters go to the ballot, you know, next general election, let's just give a hypothetical date. Let's just say if in May 2023 there's a general election. I cannot imagine... Keir Starmer being able to achieve more than 326 seats. I can still imagine Liz Truss, you know, in spite of it going all the, all, in spite of it all looking really bad for her at the moment, I can still somehow see her getting, she will not win a majority, her winning majority, that is not happening, but I can somehow seeing her still beating Labour. And that might seem strange in spite of the polls saying that, but I believe that as we get nearer to the general election, just something tells me I just cannot see Labour winning as much as I'd love it to happen. I just cannot see it happening. And yes, you know, it's like she has nothing to take credit for because she wasn't the one who delivered on Brexit. And just the point about Boris Johnson, you know, I've seen some, I've seen there being apparently some rumours that a few backbench Tory MPs have been submitting letters to the 1922 committee already to get rid of trust. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it was in the independent. And some um, people are saying that potentially this could be some opportunity for Boris Johnson to somehow try and find a way back, you know, knowing the egotistical person it is. Now, I very much hope that doesn't happen. He's got a lot to answer for. And one thing that is forgotten, because we have Liz Truss, one thing that lots of people are forgetting is that Boris Johnson and, you know, George, you raised this earlier, and how they dealt with COVID, him, Hancock, and um, I can't remember, Dominic Raab and all of them, how they dealt with COVID was so, so bad. And that must not be forgotten about, you know, the hundreds of thousands of deaths. I think the United Kingdom had over the second or third highest death count in the world under COVID because of how badly he dealt with it. That's not something that should be forgotten. And I think that is something that people forget because, you know, we now have trust and trust and so much has happened since then. But, you know, it's an absolute mess. And, if Labour does win the next general election, okay, we'd have the, we'd then have Keir Starmer as Prime Minister looking, and he'd have to pick up all the pieces from the massive mess that we're in. And, you know, would he last long? Would he last long enough to win another general election, provided he wins the upcoming one? I cannot see that happening because the Tories can easily say, oh, look, you know, the same way that back in 2010, Labour were blamed for the global financial crisis, you know, somehow that was Gordon Brown's fault. I can again see the Tories will blame Keir Starmer for the mess that the likes of Johnson and Truss have made. So, you know, things, as I said, things are looking very bad at the moment. But as I said, a really controversial point, I cannot see Labour winning majority. I just cannot see it happening, especially with Keir Starmer as leader. Um, you know, yes, Truss is an absolute mess and it's already got to the stage where we have the IMF criticising her, criticising her and Kwasi Kwarteng's budget within a month or whatever that she's been Prime Minister. But, you know, I just, when people, when push comes to shove and people are presented with their ballots, 
Although many places are predicted that are currently Tory are predicted to go back to Labour, such as the 2019 Heartlands that Boris Johnson lost. I was looking at a poll. Many of those seats are predicted to go back to the Conservatives. Sorry, back to Labour. But genuinely, I just can't see it happening. I don't think Keir Starmer is the best person to fight this trust government. You know, I feel... Things are things are a mess, you know, right now. But I don't think he's a strong enough opposition leader to lead Labour to a general election win. So jumping into the realms of speculation, then, what do you think is going to happen? At the next general election or through... Poli- well, I think what will happen, you know... Trust- I'll, I'll, say, I'll say next five years. Next five years. Well, they'll, they'll be a gen- fall, fall on, yeah. Well, there'll probably be a general election, either in 2023 or 2024, um, I think we're supposed to, I think we're scheduled to have a general election in April or May 24, but I think we'd probably end up having a snap election before then. And I think the Tories will come first, but in the minority government. And I think the numbers would add up for Labour, Lib Dem, and potentially even SNP to have more seats than the Tories, and, and that to even make a majority. But whether they'd form a coalition between Labour, Lib Dems and SNP, I cannot see that happening. Um, and again, I see a Tory, I, I see Tory minority potentially being what we could end up with. You know, I know it sounds odd to say this when the polls are really looking like Labour's going to win the majority. But as we get closer and closer to election time, I just can't see them doing it. And I think the next five years are going to just end up with a lot of political gridlock, you know, and... Yeah, I, I I can't see things getting better. And I don't think any of, and quite honestly, I don't think most of the public, I think if the public do vote in the Labour government, it's through reluctance of voting for the Tories because even many people I know who are Labour Party activists, they can't even motivate themselves to get out and lock on doors, you know, for the Labour Party right now. If that's the case, how in general election time will Labour even be able to convince people who, uh, who voted Tory last time to go and switch back to Labour or switch to Labour. I just cannot see it happening. And I think the next five years could well be a mo- five years of a lot of political gridlock. Gridlock after gridlock. Indeed. That's a, that's a, cheerful, that's a cheerful way to end this, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, personally, I, I mean, who's got the crystal ball? Whilst I do see the problem with Keir Starmer, that he's just too... He's too establishment-looking, even though he's not. There's something about him that's just not personally appealing. I think the way that maybe uh, Tony Blair was. Um, he's He doesn't have that drinkability factor that we keep talking about today. However, I do see the blue wall flipping. Mm-hmm. Um, I do see things reversing uh, to the natural state. I think as we get further away from Brexit, that will be an anomaly, the North going conservative. Um, and I think that will be the reverted black, uh, back. And actually, I do see a Labour government back in with a majority. But again, I don't have the crystal ball, but I do agree with you that even if they were to come back in, uh, it, it, it's so shattered, you know, the pieces of, of this thing called Britain are so shattered in pretty much every aspect mm. that sadly, I think the long-awaited return of Labour will not automatically mean um, you know, the return of opportunity, of the return of justice, social democracy, uh, social mobility, and all the things that we'd like to have. It will just be arduous picking up the pieces, dealing with a Brexit that 
the Labour Party didn't even really want. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, and the, the effects of COVID and uh, God, the list goes on. But closing up for today, um, and so much for non-partisanship to our viewers today, I think it, <laughs> I think there's no question on, on where we stand politically, but um, oh, uh, Brexit, oh, the gift... Point, that point, point, on, points to balance things out. <laughs> Brexit, the gift that keeps on giving. Whilst we were talking today, I thought, born in a gamble, dead on lockdown parties. Uh, It's a tragic tale, but much like the 12 years of Tory rule that we spoke about today, um, there's sadly very little positive to talk about. And those are my uh, passing thoughts. But uh, George and Shakira, if you'd like to chip in with your, your final sort of thoughts on 12 years of Tory rule before we wrap it up for today. I guess I'll I'll go then. Uh, Twelve years of Tory rule have seen has seen the country stagnate. Really, I mean, under David Cameron, Britain grew a bit for GDP, but throughout the rest of its the time, it's been generally a flat line. And that was during a time when the global economy started to rev up a little, get somewhat better. Now we're in global crisis and we're in a a state where we think that the world is going to get worse for just about everyone. And the Conservative Party is still in charge and looking utterly unable to handle it. Now, I know that this is a drum that I often beat, you know, caution and awareness of serious social collapse. But hey, never say never. Equally, never say never to them losing power and having a new party be in charge at some point. But those are closing thoughts. Well, you know, how would I summarise 12 years of Tory rule? Well, you know, I'd be here all day if I wanted to go into detail about it. But as a quick summary, I feel... You know, it started off with some positives as well as negatives, you know, under the Cameron and Clegg um, coalition years. You know, I, I feel that was, there, I feel there was a real mix of goods and bads during that time. However, as we came on to May, it just started to get worse after Brexit. You know, the country was moving. We've seen one, the one way I'd summarise the way Tory rulers, it has moved to the right progressively you know, from a Tory Lib Dem coalition to the Tory government in the EU to a Tory government negotiating Brexit, now to a Tory government outside the EU with, you know, many right-wing cabinet members with quite extreme views, you know, who are some of the most senior people in our country. So I feel, you know, Tory leadership over 12 years has just been moving to the right aggressively and... That is pretty much how I'd summarise it. Moving to the right and becoming more of a mess progressively. That's how I would summarise it in a few words. Well, at least we might be able to attack um, Donald Trump, perhaps, to open up one of his new golf courses in uh, the middle of England. But, uh, right, I wanted to thank both of you, um, our lovely co-host, George Schaff, for joining us, as always, and Shakir McLean for, um, for coming in and sharing a bit of your wisdom, your experience and your thoughts on the subject. Um, But without further ado, that will be it for our programme today. I wanted to thank all the listeners today for chipping in uh, to this rather lengthy podcast, but I hope we enjoyed, uh, uh, you will enjoy listening to this as much as we have enjoyed Saturday here chatting today. This is your co-host, Thomas Brancato, signing off.
And that wraps up this week's Cynical Talk episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends. If you haven't, let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host, Thomas Boncaso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical. Thank you.